Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo. My co-host is Joe Wolfon. And I do want to make a special note and point at the beginning of this episode. Well, one, the NBA season is here, so Halle effing Luya. Two, for reasons of sentimentality, for sentimental reasons, this episode is officially Pound the Rock episode 200B or 200 part two, if you will, because I was away last week and didn't get to take part in the actual episode 200, a great episode that you and our great friend William Liu recorded. So this is episode 200B. Next week's will be episode 202. And that's the way it's going to be. That's perfect, man. As as we discussed uh, before 200A was recorded, we had to I had to split it into two parts, like season six of The Sopranos. So even if people want to conceptualize it as two separate episodes, just like that season was really two separate seasons, in our hearts and minds, it's all part of one giant episode. So we had the first half with me and Will talking Raptors, as you know, Will is wont to do. Um, and I'm back here with you to talk about the rest of the league and some bold predictions that we have for the upcoming season, which is, uh, you know, another annual tradition like few other that I'm really excited to get into. Yeah, and unlike the uh, B side of the Sopranos final season, I don't imagine uh, either of us getting whacked at the end of this. Well, maybe maybe Tony didn't get whacked either, but I guess that's... No, that's we should, not- in, in lieu of an outro though, we should just like do a cut to black in the middle of one of us making some grand eloquent point. I like it. And then Journey will start playing. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. I did. Uh, be- before we start, though, just, you know, as as has become custom, when we do one of these like recurring episodes, I had to go back mm, and, right. and and check our bold predictions from last year to see how we did. And some unfortunate news for you, Cash. You went 0 for 5. All right. Well, bold is, uh, you know, they call it bold for a reason. But also <laughs> last season didn't count. So... <laughs> And neither did the season before, right? We've had two fake seasons in a row, and now we're finally back to... This, the season before counted because I nailed the Miami prediction early in the year. That's the only reason the season before counted. Yeah, I will say, I think you had a leg up on me in 2019-20 when it came and you, to takes, and I think I took the belt last, last year. year. Yeah, 100%. Um, but uh, yeah, maybe my picks just weren't bold enough because I went three for five. So I don't know if it was because I didn't... I, it didn't fit the definition of bold picks, or I just... Uh, I just had some hunches that turned out to be correct. But uh, the ones that I nailed were, well, okay. So (laughs) I will say one of them was that the Nets were going to lose before the conference finals, which I feel like I kind of undercut by, you know, basically a couple weeks into the season saying, okay, after actually watching the Nets, I think they're probably the favorite in the East. And then doubled down on that when they traded for Harden saying, actually, I think they're the favorite to win the championship. So, yeah, I don't know if I can really take a victory lap on that one, but it did come to fruition. They lost before the conference finals. I also had the Suns finishing top 10 on both sides of the ball, which I feel like was a pretty nice pick that also came to bear. And the Grizzlies being better than the Warriors, which by an eyelash, I managed to eke out in the play-in game. Um and those were the three that I got right. And we don't need to mention the other ones that didn't come to fruition because who cares? Still recovering from the trauma of that 0-5 bold predictions of last year. I, I, my predictions this year are less bold. 
So sorry to disappoint our listeners. I mean, there's still predictions. Like we'll, we're still going to get into some talk. But what we are, we did mention among ourselves that one thing we would do this year for our bold predictions episode is uh, basically find a way to make it like a season preview. So we're not going to have an episode where it's just like, here are our playoff predictions. Here are our five. Right. But we're going to work some of that stuff into our quote unquote bold prediction so that while you get some bold prediction today, you're also getting somewhat of a season preview. So let's just get right into it. First bold prediction, Wolfon. First bold prediction, and again, maybe this doesn't feel all that bold given how wide open the Western Conference is right now and given that they finished with the best record in the league last year and may well have made it to the finals, maybe even won the championship if their starting backcourt didn't wind up getting injured in the second round. But I have the Jazz getting over the hump and winning the West this season. What do you think? I like it a lot. It's a little bold for sure in terms of, you know, whether you're looking at like betting odds or whatever. But I'd say this. I mean, looking at rosters, you know, going by with hunches, watching stuff from last season and, and trying to come up with my own kind of predictions for myself. I came to the conclusion actually pretty quickly that I'm confident that Jazz will once again get the number one seed in the West and perhaps the best, you know, record in the league again, depending on how healthy the Nets are. I do think in terms of, at least from a regular season perspective, just which team is best equipped in the Western Conference to rack up the most wins over an 82-game season, I'm quite convinced it's the Jazz again. So I don't think there's any sort of like fluke that went into last year's uh, season. And I do think that they can very much win the West and compete for a title, like legit. Maybe this is the year. Like you think of all the great jazz teams in that franchise's history, this might be the one that actually gets the job done and wins a title. The one thing I would still say is that for as many doubts as I have about the Lakers and more so during, you know, after watching them in the preseason than I did even a couple weeks ago. And I know last year like went the way it did and LeBron and AD weren't healthy and we and we know how vulnerable this roster is if LeBron just continues to age. You know, it's not even like there needs to be some sort of catastrophic event to occur for the Lakers to completely fall off the wagon here. But I do still think, I, I think expecting like the Lakers to, to be without a healthy LeBron and AD for a chunk of the season again, and at least in the postseason, is maybe a little unrealistic. And I do believe that if LeBron and AD are healthy, that they will still beat Utah in a playoff series. And so that's the only thing keeping me from... Like, I, I'm very comfortable in saying the Jazz will be better than the Lakers in the regular season. Mm-hmm. But I'm also pretty comfortable in saying if both teams are healthy in a best-of-seven series, the Lakers would prevail. Um, and is that is there another team that you think would beat Utah in a head-to-head? Or is it just the Lakers that are giving you Honestly, in the West right now, it's just the Lakers. Like, I think Phoenix has the ability to do it. You know, I wouldn't be surprised mm-hmm. at all if Phoenix gets right back to the final. Like, they're that good. But... I do think the Jazz are actually the better built team. And I think, look, I think they're at least slightly more versatile than they were last year with Rudy Gay and Eric Pascal. I think they're just slightly better than the Suns yeah. overall. Now, the one thing I would say is if Jamal Murray's healthy, you know, the Nuggets uh-huh. are a team I would pick over the Jazz in a playoff series at full strength. You know, obviously we might be having a different conversation a few months from now once Clay gets back, once we know what the Warriors are and aren't. But right now, the way things look as it stands going into the season, I think the only team in the West I'd pick to beat them in a playoff series is the Lakers, and I wouldn't take any team in the West above them in the regular season. 
That's interesting to me because I actually think, and I'm not even comparing the Suns versus Lakers on top-down quality or who they might be as playoff teams. I just think in a matchup with Utah, I'd be way more worried about Phoenix than I would be about LA. And I understand the concern about, you know, do the Jazz really have somebody to guard LeBron one-on-one? You, you know, you're looking at like the six foot four Royce O'Neal or like Bojan Bogdanovich, basically, who's actually done a pretty good job in that assignment in the past. But like, that's kind of the big concern for them. But if you look at it schematically and which team would you actually worry about busting the Jazz's base coverage, which as we know is like going to be a drop with Gobert defending the hell out of the rim and hopefully you're getting like good pursuit from the Jazz at the point of attack. I'd be much more worried about the Suns as a mid-range team, as a pull-up jump shooting team, busting that coverage than the Lakers. Like the Lakers don't really have any viable way to bust that coverage apart from just LeBron like tearing his individual assignment to shreds and like continually drawing help and putting the Jazz in rotation. Like the Lakers are going to be wholly dependent on scoring on the interior. And so if the guy they have to get through in order to do that is Gobert, and they're not going to be a very good jump, like pull-up jump shooting team at all, then I don't know. I, I think I'd actually have way more faith in the Jazz's defense holding up against LA than holding up against Phoenix. And I'll just say, like, you may re- remember last season, like, I... I think I said at various points, like I, I believed in the jazz. I thought they were really good and had a chance to win, but that the one matchup that really concerned me for them was the Clippers. It was a terrible matchup for them for a number of reasons. And the biggest one was just that they were, it wasn't just that like they were a good small ball team. Cause a lot of teams can be effective playing small ball. It was, they could go small and hold up reasonably well defensively. They were also just like maybe the single best jump shooting team in NBA history. And obviously without Kawhi, I mean, who knows when Kawhi is going to be back, if he'll be back for the playoffs. But like, I just feel like with with that matchup, that mismatch potentially like off the table, there's just not another team that can replicate, I don't think, what the Clippers could actually do as a jump shooting team or as a small ball team. And maybe it'll come to the point where that, you know, they have to break the glass in case of emergency and go to like, you know, Rudy Gay or Pascal at the five. But I would say like this idea of like Gobert getting played off the floor in the playoffs has always been overblown. I still think it was overblown last year, even with the way that it looked with him having to like make those long closeouts chasing, you know, shoot like Batum or Terrence Mann to the corner. I think last year was the first year it was valid. I agree with you that before last year, I thought it was always overblown. But again, I don't think that that actually, like, I think that had more to do with Utah's poor perimeter defense, which was exacerbated by the injuries to Mitchell and Conley yeah. than it was about Gobert himself. And the issue to me, it, it, it's not like Gobert got quote unquote exposed. The issue to me is like, he is on his own what makes Utah's defense good. And he makes their defense good by deterring shots at the rim defending the shots that actually come at the rim exceptionally well and you know his pick and roll defense is is very very good so when it came to playing a team that went five out and didn't rely on scoring at the rim and could shoot the hell out of the ball it's more just like the thing that he did that made Utah's defense so good didn't matter nearly as much and I think it was more about that than it was about like Gobert having some huge glaring flaw in his game that got exposed in the playoffs to me like the issue with him has always been 
you know, at the offensive end, that's where he's gotten exposed in the playoffs in the past. And there's still some concern there. Like he's not, he still doesn't take advantages of size mismatches the way that he ought to, right? Like teams can get away with going small against Utah for that reason. But Utah as a whole, I think any concerns about their offense holding up in the playoffs or them being vulnerable against switching defenses kind of went away last year because I think Mitchell has taken that step to where he can bust almost any coverage. Like you can go back that the first two games of that series against the Clippers, if you want to go back and rewatch them, or like I wrote a piece about it after those two games where I showed like all the different coverages that the Clippers were throwing at Mitchell and he torched every single one of them. So I feel like their, their offense is now at a point where it can hold up to postseason scrutiny. And I don't worry about their defense nearly as much, except again, maybe against Phoenix. Uh, I, I don't worry about, their defense getting exposed the way that it did against the Clippers, just because I don't think there's another team that can shoot the ball the way that team did. Well, I'll tell you one team that can, they're just not in the West and it's Brooklyn. And I was going to, what I was going to say to you is I know neither, this isn't either one of us or a bold prediction, but yeah, uh, you have Utah in the finals. Mm-hmm. I, I'm probably still leading to the Lakers, but are we in agreement that whether it's Utah, the Lakers, the Suns, whoever we are predicting that the Western conference champion will fall to the Brooklyn Nets in the finals. I do have the Nets beating the Jazz in the finals, yes. All right. So um is that that's your bold prediction is that the Nets are going to win the title? No, it's not. It's not. It's just it's not one I mean that is my prediction, but that's not yeah. one of the five I'm coming into this episode. Not with. that it's not that bold. No. No. Neither is my first official prediction of this episode though, which is that Giannis Antetokounmpo will once again win MVP. It will not be consecutive years because he did not win it last year but he will win for the third time in four years obviously not bold but a prediction nevertheless for the season I I really do think he broke through some kind of wall last year I mean the guy was obviously already great you know and and was doing things through this stage of his career and by this age that maybe a handful of players in the history of this game in this league have done but I feel like even his most optimistic believers would have to concur that he did break through some kind of wall last year during the postseason. Even if you just think it's mental, I don't know. But I do think it's just different when a player like Giannis who hadn't got over the postseason hump yet and, you know, has these flaws in his game that were rightly criticized, especially in the postseason, when he does break through at the highest level and specifically on the team level, he gets that championship out of the way and is still at a point in his career where he is still developing and getting better. Like, I do think there's something to that, whether it's, I don't know, less pressure on him, maybe like just not having to overthink things as much, whatever the case may be. I think the combination of him getting through that wall, continuing to add to his game and just his overall skill set size to me, as I said, you know, shortly after the postseason ended, I think the way Giannis is playing right now, it's one of the few times in the last like 14 years that I have thought, any player on the planet might be or is better than LeBron at that time. And I, and I think Giannis is there. I think he's the best player in the world right now. And not wanting to put too much stock into preseason, he's looked more comfortable. I don't even want to use it settling, but he's looked more comfortable going to that kind of mid-ish range, maybe a little shorter than mid-range, but mid-ish range, short jumper. Mm-hmm. And... If he actually is as comfortable as it's looked in the preseason, if he's just a little better at it, which we can expect him to be a little better at doing it, that's just another weapon in just in what is an unbelievable arsenal 
for a player his size. And, you know, the free throw shooting or whatever. He had that insane free throw performance in the title clincher. Whether that carries over, I don't know. I think he was like 6 for 9 or 7 for 10 the other night against Dallas in a preseason performance. I was It literally looked like he was too good to be on the floor. So for all of those reasons, and also because if you think of the MVP candidates coming into this season, I think I trust Giannis's like durability, availability, and just consistency more than I trust, you know, I considered going Steph here because, you know, I think the Warriors can have a surprise, uh, maybe not surprising, but a really good regular season. And if Steph is what he is last year, he'll be in the mix. But the Warriors as a whole are still a question mark without Clay, right? And if they mm-hmm. go like 43 and 39, I don't think Steph's winning MVP. KD and Harden, I think, will take votes away from each other. Although I think both are very capable of winning MVP. Um, you know, LeBron, obviously an easy choice, but again, like, I don't know if LeBron's going to play enough, especially with Russ there now to take some of the ball handling off his shoulders. Jokic, I think could have another fantastic season, but it's hard to win two in a row from a voting perspective, unless you're just like, you know, what Giannis was a couple of years ago. And it's like, we have to give it to him or what Steph was a few years ago. So you just kind of go through all these things. And it's just, I think Giannis is the most trustworthy and the best of the MVP candidates. So he's my pick. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you say that because like, why couldn't Jokic go back to back? You want to talk about durability. I mean, there's no star who's more durable than that dude. I think he's missed two regular season games in the last like three seasons and an average of three per game since he entered the league six years ago. So he's as safe a bet as anybody to play all 82. And, you know, you sort of tack on the fact that he's going to have to carry that team while Jamal Murray is out. And I think there's going to be like, I don't see any reason why he's not going to put up like an equivalent, if not greater season, at least statistically to last year. Like there's going to be a strong push for him. If if Denver is like a top four seed, which I think is quite plausible, then I feel like he's going to be hard to unseat. But really I have, I think there's like a clear cut top five contenders going into the season, at least for me. And it is Giannis, KD, Steph, Jokic, and Embiid. And I think there's going to be a sort of compelling narrative thrust propelling all five of those guys, right? With Giannis, it is sort of the, like, after the coronation, like, he comes back and everybody saw what he was capable of at the very highest level. He finally broke through that wall. And I think in a lot of people's minds, like, whatever lingering doubt there might have been before from, you know, you remember LeBron's comments like a couple of years ago, casting doubt an aspersion on the MVP award because he, in his mind or his suggestion, it wasn't actually going to the best player in the league. And I feel like that has kind of disappeared after, you know, after everyone saw what Giannis did in the playoffs last year. And then I think, you know, by the same token, there is going to be this idea that KD planted in everyone's minds in the playoffs last year, where I still think, you know, he very much left it open-ended who actually is the best player in the league, right? Because, Giannis was the guy left standing at the end of the day. But in that series between Brooklyn and Milwaukee, I think KD was the best player. 100%. And so that's still going to be in a lot of people's minds. And if he can stay healthy, you know, even play like 65 or more games, then I think, you know, even if even if Milwaukee winds up with the best record in the East, I think there's going to be a sense of sort of obligation to honor the the what what KD has done and what he has proven as far as him, you know, being the best player in the league. So there's that, 
there's obviously Steph, like, and until Clay gets back, also going to have to, like, carry that Warriors offense. We saw what he did last year. Like, his attempts to return that franchise to its previous glory, I think, is going to have a strong sentimental pull. Jokic carrying the Nuggets without Murray, and then Embiid trying to carry the Sixers through, like, all the drama that they are mired in right now. I think all five of those guys are going to have pretty compelling cases at the end of the day. I don't disagree with any of that, but I will say that I think what will work against Durant is I think Harden will be essentially an equally deserving MVP candidate this season. Like if, if you remember uh, when Harden hit his high point of the season last year, shortly after getting to Brooklyn, when he went on that just tremendous run and in a lot of those games without at least one of KD or Kyrie, if not both of them. And I think it kind of reminded people like, oh yeah, James Harden might not be as good as Kevin Durant like on the whole, the guy is very capable, especially during like, you know, just a long, grueling regular season of absolutely carrying a team in a way that, you know, people are rewarded with MVPs for. So I honestly would not be surprised if either of KD or Harden won MVP this year. But I do think that will also matter in the voting because if both guys are as good as I think they will be this year, I think it will be hard to say, well, one of them was the most valuable player. Yeah, like there's definitely a possibility for vote splitting there, especially if Kyrie comes back at some point. If Kyrie doesn't, then I think it makes it more likely that one of those guys will win. But I would lean toward KD just because it was eye-opening to me what he did defensively in the playoffs last year, where it was like he was playing, you know, anywhere between 45 and 50 minutes a game in the latter portion of that series, carrying that team at the offensive end and playing some ridiculous defense both on the ball and as a backline helper and I know you know he's not going to be capable of doing that over the course of like a a complete regular season but you know even if he can just approximate that for stretches or just like the highest profile like nationally televised games like put his best foot forward and remind everybody what he's capable of at his absolute peak then I think you know, this voting often does come down to like storytelling and narrative as much as people want to just boil it down to like pure results. And I feel like there is this kind of neat narrative arc where, you know, KD was at the very top and like had finally seemingly reached the point where everyone was ready to crown him as the best player in the league, blows out his Achilles, has this sort of like long grueling journey back, only played half the season last year. But to me, like had gotten back to the point um, during that second round series against Milwaukee last year where I felt like he was once again, you know, the number one guy. And I think as long as he can stay healthy, I don't see any reason why he can't sort of back that up and prove it again this season. All right. What's your next prediction? So we talked about the Lakers and, you know, you feel like they're the team that has the best chance of knocking off the Jazz. They're your pick to come out of the West. To me... I think they're finishing outside the top four in the Western Conference, and I think they're getting bounced before the conference finals. Wow. Okay. And I'm not. I, I actually agree that they will. I could see them finishing in like the five or six slot. Yeah, it's just. And I, I, look, we we did like a, a a series of previews where we sort of broke down the the reasons to believe in and doubt the teams that we consider championship contenders this year. And we had the Lakers in uh, in the top tier, where we had five teams that we felt had the best chance to win the championship. And we put the Lakers in that group, and I stand by that because I do think when it comes to ceiling, like their ceiling is still as high as any team in the West, maybe even in the NBA. 
because LeBron and AD operating at the peak of their powers is still, I mean, yeah, that's still maybe the best duo in the league, right? Like I think KD and Harden is the only duo that can challenge it. But I think if you're talking about both ends of the floor, you might put the Lakers number one there. So their ceiling is still extremely high, but man, it's just, it just feels like so many things have to go right. And it starts with them being the oldest team in the league by more than two years in terms of their average age. Like their, their average age, I think is 32. And that's not to say that like an old team can't win the championship. I think people have pointed to the 96, 97 bulls that basically had around the same average age. But it's just, I don't know, the NBA is different now. It's its more physically taxing. It's more up and down and wide open. And I just don't know if a team that old can hold up over a long, grueling season the way that maybe it once could. And because they are still so reliant on that top two, and because that top two, and we have to include LeBron in this now, even though he warded it off for so long, but they are susceptible to injuries that, you know, if they're not going to knock them out, they're at least going to, you know, potentially hamper or hobble them when the playoffs roll around. And I just, all the things that I mentioned about like their matchup with the Jazz, right? Like, I I don't know. There's like a distinct lack of pull-up jump shooting on this team that I think is going to be really problematic in the playoffs. I I have talked on this pod before about why I think the Westbrook fit is really troubling. And for all of the positives that come along with it, you know, like how good this team can be in transition, how dominant they can be as an interior scoring team. I don't think they made their offense better enough to offset how much they lost at the defensive end of the floor. Like they lost their two best point of attack defenders in Caruso and KCP. And they've replaced them with what, you know, Westbrook, Kendrick, Nunn, Malik Monk, Rondo, like it's, it's going to be a lot of pressure on the back line. And that's asking a lot of, you know, 37 year old LeBron James and, occasionally rickety Anthony Davis, you know, I just, um, I I can definitely see a scenario in which they do hit their ceiling and win the West and maybe even the whole shebang. But I just think a lot of things have to go right for that to happen. And uh, I'm not trusting it. So I see them getting bounced before the conference finals. Yeah. I'll say that if the Lakers defense is anywhere near as good as it's been the last couple of years this year, then Anthony Davis is probably the defensive player of the year because I hundred percent. Right. And, and, and that's the same because I do agree with all the uh, question marks there to say the least. The one interesting point I would make is that everyone is kind of seems to be split on whether the Owen six preseason means anything, right? Like the mm. women's preseason. And what I would say is that I think the telling thing for me is that they were still, even in this winless preseason, a positive point differential team in the limited preseason minutes LeBron was on the court. And so some people are looking at it as being like, see, the, the preseason win-loss record doesn't matter because, you know, the way it will be when the season tips off, LeBron's on the court, they're fine. And I do get that and I agree with it. After all, I'm picking them to prop, like, come out of the West in the playoffs. But the one thing I would say is I don't necessarily think that's just a positive indicator because I do think it's also a reminder of how 
disjointed and vulnerable this team is without LeBron. And look, I know you can basically say that about almost any team LeBron's ever played on, but this team in particular out of his most recent ones is very vulnerable without him. And as we've seen in two of the last three years, we do have to start getting used to life without LeBron more often. And so though I'm the one who said they're still coming out of the West, I am far less convinced about this team than I have been in previous years. When, as you know, like even a couple of years ago, you know, I was banging that drum that they would win the title all year. And even when they struggled at times, I was like, nah, they'll be fine. Like this year, even though I'm saying they'll come out of the West, I'm way less convinced about it. Like I could very easily be concerned about this team's short-term success this year, like three weeks from now. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, to your point, like, yeah, the, I think they're still going to be really good with LeBron and Anthony Davis on the floor. And that gives them a, maybe a higher playoff ceiling than regular season ceiling, right? Like when, when they shorten their rotation and, you know, are presumably able to keep those guys on the floor for the vast majority of the game, they're going to be a tough out. But it's like we were saying that all last year too. Like, okay, just they just need to get into the playoffs and they'll be fine. And maybe they would have been if AD hadn't gotten hurt in that series against the Suns or LeBron hadn't been slightly hobbled the way that he was. But that did happen. Like AD did get hurt and LeBron was hobbled. And I, I don't think you can just cast that aside as like an aberration given the age of LeBron, given AD's injury history. You just give yourself a way harder path when that happens, right? Like the Lakers finished with the seven seed, barely got by the Warriors in the first play-in game. And then had to wrangle with the Suns, you know, the eventual Western Conference champion in the first round. And it's not like, yeah, it's all it's all well and good to be like, okay, just get the Lakers to the playoffs and like, they'll be fine. But that's not really the case. Like, <laughs> make it really hard on yourself in a very deep and challenging Western Conference when you get behind the eight ball. So, um, again, I'm like not I'm not dismissing the possibility that everything clicks and that they win the West, but I don't see it happening, honestly. Only because we were just kind of discussing awards. This wasn't going to be the next one I go to, but just to keep uh, the theme from that perspective, I will say that one of my five, or so my next one, because we had mentioned the thing about AD and like the Lakers have that kind of defense, then he's the defensive player of the year. So I'm picking Joel Embiid to win defensive player of the year this year. And nice. I, I think the Sixers, although I guess depending on Ben Simmons' availability, there are maybe some more question marks defensively there than there have been in the last couple of years. I do think that there is enough still there and Joel Embiid is that good defensively that they will remain elite defensively. And I think that because I'm so unsure of what happens with Ben Simmons, now it seems like he, you know, will be playing sooner rather than later, but how often will he play? Like what, how long does that last? And also if they end up trading him, I think what will most likely have, like if I were, if someone were to say, what, how do you think the Ben situation will play out this year what i'd say is he plays ends up getting traded at some point mid-season more than likely because ben simmons is that good defensively the pieces coming back will hamper them slightly defensively and i think joel Embiid will pick up the slack and get the job done and so i the way i envision the season going for philly while it won't maybe end up in the team success people you know sixers fans would hope for in the postseason i do think they'll remain really good in the regular season, elite defensively. I think Joel Embiid will be the reason for that, and he will be rewarded with his first Defensive Player of the Year award. I hope so. I, I would really like to see it because it frustrated me to no end last year that the guy who I thought was the most important figure in Philly's top two defense didn't seem to get any recognition or like any kind of 
serious push for that award when people were talking about Ben Simmons's candidacy seemingly every day. And somehow people were still like acting as if Ben Simmons is some disrespected NBA player who people only want to focus on his flaws and not his strengths. And like he was getting serious buzz for defensive player of the year, wound up finishing runner up when he's not even the best defensive player on his own team. Sorry. Like Ben Simmons is a really, really good defender, but he like Joel Embiid is more important to that Sixers defense than Ben Simmons is the two of them together, like make it special. But I agree with you in that, you know, I think it would worry me. Like if, if for instance, Ben Simmons was traded in a package that brought back like Bradley Beal. Okay. It would concern me the level to which Embiid would have to, you know, the number of fires that he would have to put out essentially on the back line because of how compromised the team's defense would be on the perimeter, given a trade like that. I think it would be a challenge for him to keep them sort of in like the top 10, even at that point. And basically, Gobert won it last year, right? Yeah. So that's more or less what Gobert had to do last year. He was the entire jazz scheme. Everything was funneled towards him. The jazz were not super strong in the perimeter. And again, we saw that bear out in that series against the Clippers. And it was entirely incumbent on Gobert to stymie everything at the rim and just clean up a ton of mistakes. And I think Embiid would be in that same position. And so if he was able to do what Gobert did and essentially keep Philly, I think the jazz finished even in the top five defensively last year. Like if he was able to do that, I think he would have a similar case for being the defensive player of the year where he is the entire system. Um, and I actually think, you know, he, if you look at like his actual rim protecting numbers, like his defensive field goal percentage at the rim, it's not close to Gobert's. Like he's not on the same level as somebody who can actually alter shots at the rim. But as far as like a deterrent, he's basically just the same. Like the, the, the effect that he has on opponent's shot profile and his ability to deter them from even attempting shots at the rim is like right up there with the best in the league. So, um, look, I think, I think he's an incredible defensive player and I think that he will probably have a strong case come season's end. And it is dependent on what happens with Simmons. Cause you talked about vote splitting with the MVP picture. And I think just like we saw last year, that could happen with the defensive player of the year race as well. If Simmons is a sixer for the entire season, but we just don't know that right now. What's your um, next one? My next one. Okay. The New York Knicks, great feel-good story, great season last year, got better in the offseason. I still think they're finishing last in the Atlantic division and missing the playoffs. And that that doesn't include the play-in. I think they'll make the play-in. I don't think they'll make the top eight. And it's not even really an indictment of the Knicks. Like I think they're going to be a pretty good team. I think it's more just a statement on how strong that division is, how much better the Eastern Conference got. I think they played a bit above their heads last year, maybe a lot above their heads last year. And and so I just think, and I said this on the episode with Will, but like, I, I think that despite getting better, they're still going to be worse in the win column this coming season. And I think that's going to lead to them finishing in the Atlantic division cellar, which again, I mean, that division's come a long way since it was the Titanic division, right? Like, it, it is the best division in the Eastern Conference. I think probably after the Pacific division, it's the best def- it's the best division in basketball. And um, I, I think the Knicks could very well be like a 500 team and still finish fifth 
and still miss out on the top eight in the East, which again, I just think that conference has gotten really good. Might be the better conference this year. I've got the Knicks as a better team than they were last year, and I've got them finishing ninth or 10th. There you go. Yeah, I, I have them 10th right now yeah. in the East. So. I, I, I've got them 10th. I could see them ninth, but I, I have them 10th. Yeah, but I think so. like the real, the, the bone of contention there is going to be, because I don't think too many people, you know, outside of like Knicks fans would quibble with them finishing like behind Brooklyn, Philly, and Boston, right? Like that's like, totally plausible, arguably even probable. I think the thing that would maybe ruffle some feathers or raise some eyebrows is like, are they really going to finish behind the Raptors? And uh, yeah, I sort of think they will. I think those two teams are going to actually be very, very close in the standings and have really similar records. But I kind of like the Raptors depth a little bit more. And even in terms of the top end talent, it's like, okay, if everybody plays to the exact same level that they played at last season, then yes, Julius Randle is the best player out of those two teams. I don't necessarily have a ton of faith in Randle replicating what he did last season. I definitely think that he took a real jump and is going to continue to be an all-star caliber player, but like all nba who shoots like 40 plus percent from three, that I, I'm not so sure about. And then it's like, okay, after Randle, even if you take for granted that he's the best player of those two teams, I think the next three best players are all Raptors. And so I just think in terms of like roster balance, um, you know, look, I think the Knicks defense is probably going to come back to earth a little bit at least. And I think the Raptors defense is going to get a lot better. And so then it sort of just comes down to which team do I believe in more on the offensive side of the ball? And I'm kind of leading Raptors there. Yeah, I think the uh, Raptors offense is actually going to be surprisingly decent given the lack of maybe like half court creation. I think especially if Pascal Siakam comes back and just is what, like, I don't even want to get into like, well, if he gets back to like, if, if Pascal Siakam is just is who he is, is the player he's capable of being at this very moment when he gets back and healthy. I think that solves some of the half court shot creation issues, not all of them, obviously, but I do think, and you saw it a little bit in the preseason. Um, look, is, is the reliance on transition and deep, like offense fueled by defense going to hamper a team like the Raptors if they make the playoffs in the playoffs? Of course it will. But in the regular season, could it lead to even, you know, could, I think their defense is good enough. They're athletic enough, they're versatile enough that they will get enough offense fueled from their defense. They will dominate in transition. And if they just stay relatively healthy once the comes back and everyone just kind of plays up to their offensive capabilities, I think all of those things are enough, at least in the regular season, to be like a middle of the pack offense. And I think, if the Raptors' defense is as good as I truly believe it can be, and they have a middle-of-the-pack offense, I think they're a no-brainer uh, playoff team. I really do. So in the East, I've got between like Boston, uh, Chicago, Indiana, Toronto, New York. I've got those teams as like my six to ten. You know, Same. I think Brooklyn, Milwaukee, Miami, Atlanta, Philly. However, you want to like go back and forth them. I think those should be if everything you know and things don't go according to plan. You never know, but. Mm-hmm. If things go according to plan, I think those are your top five in the East. And then I think, yeah, Boston, Indy, Chicago, Toronto, New York, depending how things go, injuries, this and that, one of those teams should grab the last playoff proper spot. The other four should be, you know, fighting in the plan. And then, I don't know, maybe Charlotte catches lightning in a bottle. One of those teams we just mentioned falls off and they steal it. You know, maybe if like Beal absolutely balls out and then we're like, but I don't, I don't think Washington will get in that mix, but um, that, that's kind of the way I see the East going. And yeah. 
So if if you don't have anything else to add about the Knicks, I will well, say that. Okay, oh, okay, sorry. Go no, go for, no, go for I it. I was go just going to say because that it actually segues nicely into my my final two bold predictions. So I, I don't want to go out of turn, but I will say, you know, a big part of the reason that I am banking on the Raptors being better than the Knicks in the regular season is my fourth bold, bold prediction is that OG Ananobi is going to be an all-star this year. Well, I love it because uh, in our official NBA predictions that the two of us and the entire NBA content team uh, are are coming out within a couple of days, put together by our friend Jonathan Savetta, I went with, and I'm not sure if you did, but I went with OG as the most improved player this season. And it's because I envision him being, whether he makes the All-Star team or not, I envision him being an All-Star caliber player this year. Mm-hmm. And I think... If, if he's the player I envision him being this year, I believe he will win most improved player. So I like I like that bold prediction. I didn't have him as most improved. And the reason is, and it's the same reason I didn't pick him last year when he was a very trendy pick to win that award, which is that I just think his baseline level of play is already very high. And so to improve to the point that he's actually winning that award, I think would take a lot. And a jump that I don't think he's actually going to make this year. I just don't think that like, he needs to make some quantum leap to get into all-star territory. Cause I think he's already reasonably close to that. It's like the defense is obviously there. The shooting is obviously there. The stuff he needs to fill in is just the off the dribble game, which he showed really encouraging flashes of in the preseason. And um, like my pick for, for most improved was Jordan pool, which I think is just going to be more, it's going to be easier to just like see in broad strokes, like when you look at his counting stats and like the impact that he's going to have, I think on that Warriors team where I said on our breakout players episode, like I definitely see him being like second in that team on, in scoring. Um, and that like could in, involve him jumping from like 11 or 12 points a game, whatever he averaged last year to like 19 or 20 this year. And I think jumps like that uh, are just typically rewarded with that award more so than a guy going from, you know, OG averaged something like 15 and a half points a game last year. He might average 20 a game this year, but it's like, I think the development isn't going to be any less meaningful, but I just think in terms of like counting stats and in terms of where he started to where he's going to get to, it's going to be a little bit more subtle. Um, but I do think that he, I, I can see him being an all-star this year just because it's like the foundation of the game is already so solid there's just like a few specific areas in which he needs to improve. And if the preseason was any indication, he looks very ready to improve in those areas. So um, I think like that's obviously going to be hugely important for the Raptors offense, because you mentioned the deficiency in terms of half court shot creation. Um, It's not a very good shooting team. Like they're going to be really dependent on OG to take that step and be a guy who can handle the ball a lot more, who can be a bit more of a playmaker, more of a self creator. I think he's ready. And, uh, and I think that's going to end with him being an all-star and with the Raptors being a playoff team. I like it. Since we were talking about the East mid-tier there, and you use that as a segue to what I think was your fourth prediction, mm-hmm. I'll also use it as a segue to what will be, I guess, my third prediction of the show. And that is that by finishing in the 6-10 to 10 range, maybe in the play-in range, probably disappointing to some in the organization and maybe to some of the players, and given some of the reported tension between... Jalen Brown and 
the coach that is now the president of basketball operations, my bold prediction, and maybe it's not so much as an in-season prediction, but that this is the last year of the Jason Tatum-Jalen Brown combo. What kind of player are you targeting if you're trading Jalen Brown? Like what sort of fixes that roster and pairs well with Tatum? Like a specific player? You mean like a style of player? A style of player. Um... I mean, Tatum can do so much that I really think so many different player types fit with him. You know what I mean? Like I, mm-hmm. I think because he can do so much on his own from like a shot creation standpoint, I, I'm not saying you, you don't need another shot creator because we know, you know, their bevy of creation is actually why they beat the Raptors a couple of years ago. It's why they were, you know, a contender, I guess, up until this year. But I do think because of Tatum's skill set and versatility, I'd like to see them get a more impactful big man. Like a, a Rudy Gobert type, you know, dive man slash rim protector or more Yeah, now like obviously a, not Rudy, you know, like probably not Rudy Gobert. I don't think they're getting, um, mm-hmm. you know, one of the best defensive players of his generation, but... Okay, well, what about this? And, and and I don't think this would be on the table now because I think that the the way that Jalen Brown has elevated his game and the particular ways in which he's done it ha- has probably, I, I just don't think that it's realistic anymore. But I, I do remember a couple of years back, there was sort of talk, and I think it was purely speculative. There was no real reporting behind it. I just, I just think it was something that a lot of people thought made sense for both teams. But like, there was talk of a potential Jalen Brown for DeMontis Sabonis swap in a way that would, you know, potentially help balance both of those rosters. So is it something like that? Is it like a yeah, skill? I think offensive yeah. big man, you know, like a Sabonis yeah. or a Towns or like somebody like that, or is yeah. it? Is it a, a more defensively minded? No, I think uh, I think. Runner? I mean, I think it could be either, but I like the skill portion of it. Um, you know, I don't think you want a defensive black hole coming mm-hmm. back the other way, but uh, a guy like Sabonis. I mean, what about Miles? Tur- Again, Jalen Brown has played himself to the point where like Miles Turner coming back is not enough for him, but. You know, someone like Miles Turner who's got the defensive ability but also is nothing close to an offensive black hole. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. But I do think that uh, in terms of roster balance, that would actually help. Now, well, I, think, I, I yeah, say that well, and then and then a year – if that actually were to go down a year and a half from now, we could be talking about the fact that Jason Tatum doesn't have enough like shot creation help in that offense. You never know. Which, uh, I mean, I think it was a problem for that offense yeah. last year, honestly. And it wasn't – Losing Gordon Hayward. Yeah, but it wasn't like – like Tatum and Brown are really good self creators, but I think the team sort of suffered from a lack of playmaking, even so, just because there weren't a ton of guys on that team who really created for others. I guess part of the problem was Smart missed a lot of time, and he's one of the few guys on that roster who can really do that. He was a, a pretty underrated passer, I think. And obviously, Kemba being in the diminished state that he was in played a huge part in that. But I think their offense was just like super stagnant a lot of the time because those guys were mostly looking to create for themselves and not so much looking to create for others. So I think it depends, like if Rob Williams takes this big step this year and I think like his tools are just off the charts, right? Like if he can put it all together, I think he could very much be that impactful big man that you're talking about. If that happens and they still want to trade Brown, then I would probably look to trade him for like a a star point point guard, guard. Like, like a real, Somebody who can move Tatum into more of like a, it doesn't even have to be like a secondary role. If you think about it, like he could still be the team's number one scorer, 
but a role in which he's more attacking from the second side, starting more possessions off the ball rather than initiating and getting more stuff in the flow of the offense rather than just always, you know, basically being asked to initiate from a standstill. Right. Like, I think that would really benefit him and the Celtics. So, you know, even like Jalen Brand for Bradley Beal, like, how does that yeah. sound, you know? Um, or, or Damian Lillard, like, it, you know, if it comes to that for either of those teams, then Brown, like, everyone's talking about Ben Simmons being, you know, like the, the piece that is potentially going to go back in a deal like that. If, if Lillard decides he wants out, if Beal decides he wants out, but I think right now, like Jalen Brown's a better trade chip than Ben Simmons. Would you agree? I'd agree. Yeah. All right. So you, you've hit us with four. I've gone with three. That means we've got three left between the two of us. Let's take the break, come back and get to those final three predictions. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, three predictions left between the two of us. I'll get to one of my final two now, and that is that the Minnesota Timberwolves will make the play-in and finish ahead of the New Orleans Pelicans. So it's kind of like a, a dual prediction because it's the Timberwolves finishing ahead of the Pelicans, the Timberwolves making the plan and the Pelicans mm. not making the plan. So a bunch of stuff going on there. How do you feel about that? Yeah. So I, I actually gamed out the Western conference standings as I see them shaking out. And I wound up with the Pelicans 10 and the Wolves 11. I flipped So them. I assume you just had that flipped and you have the Wolves finishing 10th, which, you know, doesn't feel that bold to me. I, I really, if Zion was coming into the season completely healthy, and there weren't any concerns about how much he was going to be able to play, then I might push back a little harder on this because I've said before, like I actually, I feel like I'm higher on the Pelicans than consensus. And I said, I thought they had a chance to win 45 plus this year. Obviously there's now this dark cloud that has been cast over this season where Zion's starting the year on the shelf. He's coming off a broken foot. Presumably that's also when he does come back, going to lead to some kind of load management program. And I mean, you know, my my optimism about the Pelicans had more to do had to do with more than just Zion, but it was primarily about Zion. Like the way that he finished last season was just unbelievable. Like he he to me finished the season as you know one of the best five or six offensive players in the league, and you know if he's not if if he's gonna miss like even like twenty five games, then yeah, I think it's going to be really, really hard for the Pelicans even to make the play-in and finish in the top 10. And I do think, like I said, I had the Wolves finishing 11. So if there's a team that can kind of usurp them and jump up and, and be the team that's getting into the latter stage of that play-in mix, then I think it totally could be Minnesota. They've got to stay healthy too, right? Like they're, Towns and Russell have barely played together since they traded for Russell. So we still don't entirely know how it works with those two guys together and whether they can cobble together anything resembling a league average defense, right? Like, can they even get into the top 20 on defense? And then, you know, is 
are we going to see a leap from Anthony Edwards, you know, at either or both ends of the floor and like their offense still needs to improve also, right? Like the idea of this team was that they were going to have this great offense, but that their defense was going to pull them down. Their offense sucked last year also, you know, and, and injuries played a part in that Towns missed a bunch of time. Russell missed a bunch of time. I think they will be better this year, especially with Chris Finch there. And we know what a creative coach he can be. Um, But just like, I understand the excitement about the Wolves, but also there are still huge question marks surrounding that team. Yeah. And I mean, at the end of the day, we're, we're picking them to finish 10th and like even me in, in picking them ahead of the Pelicans slightly going against the grain, but I'm still picking them to finish 10th. You know, it's not like I'm expecting some giant leap from them. But the one thing I will say is that not even with, you know, going back to the whole, well, when Russell and Towns have played together, they actually have posted a winning record because it's such a small sample size. But the thing that I think it was most encouraging to me is what their offense looked like and performed like with even just Towns and Edwards on the court together under Chris Finch. Because if you look at minutes when Towns and Edwards shared the court, once they made the coaching change, the Wolves posted numbers that would amount to a top two offense and a bottom two defense. Right. And so I do think if healthy, which again is a big if, even if just Edwards is what he was last year, I think he'll be better. But even if he's that, and then Towns and Russell are healthy, under Chris Finch, I actually think this could be maybe elite is a strong word, but a very, very, very good offense. And at that point, as you met, it's like, literally, can you just be like the 20th best defense? You know, right? can you be at the top end of the bottom 10? Or maybe, because I think even middle of the pack is asking way too much of this roster on the defensive end. But if you can get into that like 20, 21st range on the defensive end, while being what I think they can be on the offensive end when healthy, then this is, to me, a play-in team and a team that will be better than a Pelicans team that is way too reliant on a guy that, as I mentioned a few episodes back, I'm starting to become increasingly concerned about his ability to stay healthy as a very large young man with continued foot, knee, whatever it is, issues. Um, so, yeah, and I also, I'm, I'm really excited to watch what I hope is a healthy Carl Anth- uh, Anthony Towns have what I think will be the best season of his career. You know, he hasn't been healthy in like three years. Obviously, we know like off the court wise, the guy was dealing with family mm-hmm. um, tragedy last year. And I think it's almost unfair to have expected him to come back from that and, and play the best basketball of his life or anything close to it. But I would hope, you know, from a personal standpoint, he's just time obviously can't heal some wounds, but I hope it. He, I hope he's just doing better given how much time has gone by now physically seems like he's healthy reports that you know his healthy has been in a few years and i and i am looking for maybe it's just like wishful thinking or me wanting to be positive about a guy that although i have been one of the many people who have called his like competitiveness into question over the years i have never called his talent into question and i do think if he's just healthy and shows up and play talent wise plays to his capabilities you know he's one of the most offensively gifted bigs i've ever seen and if he has the year he's capable of having the Wolves stay healthy. I think they make the plan. I mean, I think, look, what's what's amazing about Towns is like you can use him in any number of different ways on offense, yeah. right? Like he can operate out of the post. He can play either end of the pick and roll. He can spot up. He can pick and pop. Like there are literally no limit to the number of things that you can do with him. And I think, you know, if you throw in the kind of combined playmaking ability, I mean, you know, like not really, we're not there yet with Edwards, but like, he obviously showed toward the end of last season, like he can do some stuff off the dribble. He can overpower people. The jump shot is maybe still a ways away, but like 
th- that trio, like with Towns, Edwards, and Russell, like I think there's just enough combined shooting, playmaking, off the dribble juice there that there's like a lot of interesting stuff that you can do that involves all three of those guys. And so I'm curious to see what the offense looks like. I, and I'm curious to see what the defense looks like because we've heard Chris Finch talk about, you know, using Towns more at the level of the screen, using him more in like a, a Jokic-like role, right? Where he hasn't been effective as a drop defender. So can you take advantage of his, like, it's different. Like with Jokic, he really has incredible hands, right? And that's why he's been so effective playing at the level. And I just don't know if that's going to be the same with Towns. Like he hasn't shown that same kind of acumen, the same instincts, the same ability to use those hands to create steals and deflections. So is that going to work? I think, you know, part of the reason I would maybe be slightly more optimistic about it is like, obviously if Towns, if Towns isn't having an impact at the level of the screen and all it's doing is putting the Timberwolves in rotation, then it's not going to work. But if he can be effective at the level, I would say like if, if it's only putting the Wolves in rotation some of the time, I think, you know, Jaden McDaniels becomes this sort of important figure there where he's the guy who very often is going to be asked to sort of quarterback the rotations and be the last line of defense. And I feel like he's capable of doing that, man. Like his defensive potential to me is sky high. And maybe it's like a little bit concerning having that much on the shoulders of a second year player, but I do think he's capable of doing that. And I actually think, you know, the thing with the Wolves defense is like they have guys who are capable of defending at a high level. It really is just a question of whether they can stay on the floor or whether them being on the floor is going to cripple the Wolves offense because, you know, McDaniels, Josh Okoji, Pat Beverly, even like these are guys who can defend and who can, you know, make a meaningful impact and, and maybe nudge that Wolves defense up towards something resembling league average. But if those guys can't shoot the ball, then it's going to be hard for them to stick, uh, especially because, you know, like, yes, Russell and Towns can both shoot really well, but Edwards to me as a jump shooter is still a bit of a question mark. So that's, I think what they're missing, right? It's just a little bit more of that two-way balance. Like they don't really have two-way players. No. Who's the best, who's the best two-way player on the Wolves? Like, you know what I mean? It's uh, if uh, let me, not I'll a whole say lot this. there. Here's what I'll say, not to toot our own horns, but given the uh, range of knowledge the two of us have, and especially combined about, you know, the NBA as a whole and every team in it, the fact that I am in the process right now of pulling up the Wolves depth chart to try to figure out <laughs> who the best two-way player on the team is should tell you how much of an issue it is because... I'm legitimately having to be like, let me actually go through the entire roster and not just like, you know, the top five, six, seven guys because yeah. I need to actually think about this. And my answer, oh man. It might be Pat Beverly. Okay, so I, th- th- the reason I said, oh man, is because I was considering the offensively challenged Pat Beverly because, you know, he can shoot. Yeah, he's a good shooter. He, he routinely I mean, shoots is it 40, 40 plus percent from three. <laughs> I, I don't think Nasri is there at the defensive end yet. I really like him. Like I think he's a very skilled offensive big man. Yeah. But um, the point is, if we're talking about Pat Beverly and Nasri, is potentially 
being in the conversation for the best two-way players on your roster, you don't have any two-way players on your roster. Yeah. Well, I think the hope is that it's going to be Edwards, right? Yeah. And I think he can be. Yeah. But maybe not this year. No. All right. What's your last prediction? So, yeah, we were talking about it earlier. And um, so it, it connects with a lot of my other predictions. But uh, I do think this is the year that Brad Beal finally asks out. And I don't think he ends the season as a Washington Wizard. Because... I just, I, look, I, I, he's said all the right things and we know that it isn't just about winning with him, right? Like he has talked about how important it is to like feel a part of that community in Washington and, you know, how important it is for, for him to be, like to have the, the organizational equity that he has, right? For him to be the guy who has input on personnel moves, who the team is being built around, all that stuff. Like even so, I just think it has to be getting frustrating at this point and I don't see the Wizards really improving this year. I actually see them regressing. Like they made the playoffs last year. I don't think that's going to happen this year. I don't think they're going to even make the play in. Like I see them finishing outside the top 10. And I just think it's uh, that that's got to start wearing on Beal at a certain point. And so I think that it does reach a point where he asks for a trade. And before the deadline, he has moved somewhere else. I just want to point out that uh, while I agree with everything you said, and I've always said, you know, he, he says the right things when it comes to whether he wants to be traded or not. Uh, I did want to point out that when Joe Wolfon said Bradley Beal has said the, all the right things, he did not mean when it comes to healthcare. Yes. Thank you for correcting that because um, whatever, we, we delved into it already. We don't need to rehash what he said on media day, but yeah, he, he has said the right things. If you are a Washington Wizards fan and hope to see him stay in Washington, and yeah. um, that's where I guess the right things that he has said end. Do you have a team and or teams that you believe, since you are predicting he won't be a wizard mm-hmm. by the end of the season, do you have like one or two, three max teams uh, that you think he will be a member of by April? Um, I mean, the, the Sixers are the one of the obvious destinations, I think. Um, I don't think that Simmons on his own would be enough to get that deal done. What, you know, what, what is, obviously I think with the way that Daryl Morey has been negotiating, he's going to be asking the Wizards to add stuff on top of Bradley Beal in order to make that deal happen. But that's, that's the closest I can kind of come to imagining like a one-for-one swap where a bunch of young players or picks aren't being included. I mean, uh, honestly, like I had, it sort of just popped into my head when you were talking about the Jalen Brown thing, but I do think that's interesting. Uh, if the Celtics season doesn't go the way that they're hoping or expecting it to, I think that could be a possibility. And I think, you know, it's interesting actually, because I always sort of imagine the Warriors as being one of the teams that could get into that mix. They do have the collection of young players and picks to make that kind of a trade happen. I think they're going to want to wait before deciding on any kind of move until Clay gets back and, and they can see what he looks like. And I also wonder if maybe, you know, if Poole has the kind of season that I feel like he's capable of having and that the preseason may have portended, then maybe that's not the type of player they need to be targeting in a trade if they do decide to go that route. Um, so I don't know. I think depending on how things go, that the Warriors could be a team that's in that mix. Um, but maybe just because of how guard heavy they are, 
um, they if if they do decide to make like a superstar trade, maybe they're more targeting a big man. Um, but yeah, Sixers, Celtics. Um, I don't know. Is there another team that you could see jumping into that conversation? No, for me, Sixers and Warriors are the two. Yeah, that maybe the, mine. Although I, maybe the I, Raptors. I will, the Raptors. I mean, look, the Raptors. In terms of at least just like from a rumors perspective, they, they were linked to him so many times. Again, now not in any credible reports, but just in like fan kind of fiction or even analysts being like, well, this trade would make sense. Mm-hmm. Do you think it makes as much sense now where the Raptors are on this kind of development curve? And I know they're still like close, like they're, they are maybe one big trade away from jumping back into the contenders mix. But I do wonder if the Raptors are trying to time this out, if they can strategically to kind of be the team that rises shortly after this little like Nets Bucks mm-hmm. window, maybe if you want to call it. And I don't know if they're ready to push that many chips in to the middle of the table for right now. Yeah, I guess I would just say Beal's like a year older than Siakam. And so, I, I mean, I, I guess to your point, like I don't think Siakam on his own would get that done. Like they would maybe have to throw some more assets in there, whether it's picks or young players. But yeah, I don't know, man. I guess it depends on like how quickly they think Barnes can develop. Right. You know, if they see Barnes as being like a, an all-star caliber player in year three, for instance then that naturally accelerates their timeline. Yeah. If they if OG Ananobi is an all-star this year and if they are a playoff team as a result, then they can maybe start talking themselves into jumping up another tier by making a move like this. And b- by the way, I don't think Beal is like that much better on the whole than Pascal Siakam. So, I was going to say to you when you mentioned that, you know, you don't think Siakam would get the deal done. Are you even convinced that Bradley Beal is a better overall basketball player than Pascal Siakam? I think slightly, yes. I do think he's better just because I think that the things that he does are more valuable slightly in like today's NBA. And it's not like, I'm not saying that like offense is all that matters in the NBA today, just because like offenses are going off the charts and teams are scoring like crazy. That doesn't mean that defense doesn't matter anymore. And the multi-positional defense that Siakam can play, the various different schemes in which he can be effective the amount of court that he can cover, all of that is still super valuable. And I don't want to sleep on his offense either. Like, despite the fact that his efficiency has come back down to being, you know, middling essentially when he's been asked to be a number one guy, if he winds up as like a complimentary offensive player anywhere, his his ability to, you know, attack mismatches, score in the post, his cutting, his open court prowess, his playmaking out of the post, like all that stuff is really, really, really valuable. It's just that I think he's been asked to be, you know, he's been asked to do a little bit too much maybe for this Raptors offense the last couple of years. But like, yeah, you, you sort of take both sides of the ball and I think it's very close. I just think that for this Raptors team, they need what Beal brings or a player like Beal brings a little bit more than they need what Siakam brings at this point in time. And, and so that's why I would potentially like a move like that for them. If, if Beal was in a different situation, then maybe I could see that like one for one trade working out for both sides. The reason I just don't see that as being a one for one for Washington is because like I said, Beal's a year older than Seattle. What are they, what are they really getting out of that exchange? I don't really think the Raptors is where he ends up anymore. 
Mm-hmm. I did for a while think it, it just made too much sense for them not to pursue it, but I no longer think that. And in in my opinion, I I think I'd lean Siakam because the way I look at it is, although Bradley Beal is far more capable as a as a creator offensively, like as a as a number one type shot creator, I don't think either one is actually capable of being the number one guy on a championship team. And so I think if if I'm looking at it as like, well, neither one of them is that. And so both would be actually be better suited to maybe being the number two guy. Now, again, I realize Beal from an offensive standpoint checks a lot more boxes in that like number one shot creation role, but I still wouldn't. I think if Bradley Beal is your number one guy, I don't think you're competing for a championship. And so if we're looking at both of them being like, well, they're actually best suited to be complementary roles in some way, then give me the guy who does more at an elite level. And I think that's Pascal Siakam. Yeah, I mean, it's just... I, I tend to not say stuff like that. Like, he can't be the number one guy on a championship team or he can't, like... Because I just think it's so dependent on who the other players are on said team. And it's not like I would... If the Raptors traded for Brad Beal, I'd be like, oh, they're going to win a championship sometime in the next three years. Like, I right. wouldn't necessarily predict that to happen. But, okay, if Bradley Beal was the de facto number one guy on a team that also had Fred Van Vliet and OG Ananobi, who could be two dynamite secondary and tertiary creators, and you're surrounded by a ton of defensive talent, and Scotty Barnes is this sort of Swiss army knife who can do it all on defense and also be a playmaker on offense, and like they're devastating in the open floor. You start to like, yeah, I think Brad Beal could be the de facto number one shot creator on a championship team as long as like the other pieces around him were in place. Like what if he, what if he did get traded to Philly, you know, straight up for Ben Simmons? You're telling me that like that team couldn't win a championship with, with him and Embiid, you know, surrounded by a bunch of capable role players. They would, he wouldn't be the best player on that team. He'd be the number one shot creator. Yes. But so that's what I mean. Like he wouldn't be the best player on that team. Uh huh. Like you're not winning a championship if Bradley Beal is your best player. Full stop. Right, but I don't. I mean, like the we're we're getting like so far in the weeds on this totally hypothetical scenario. So, but it's not like Bradley Beal would necessarily end up being the best player on like a championship contending version of the Raptors, right? Like he could still right. be supplanted by OG potentially, by Barnes potentially. Like who knows? Before I get to my last prediction, I will say that it was a decent segue to what I almost did as a bold prediction, but it actually would have been too bold. And I, I just couldn't talk myself into actually believing it will happen because it won't. But so if anyone in Toronto, at least, or Raptors fans, listen to Wolfon and I on Will, Lou, and Alex Wong's uh, Raptors show on Sportsnet 590, I mentioned in that that one of my pre- bold predictions for the Raptors season was that they would have multiple players appear on the all-defensive team. I think those players will be Van Vliet and Ananobi. Mm-hmm. Ananobi more so. But... Given how much faith I have in Scotty Barnes' defensive ability and, and the fact that I think he's one of the rare, rare, rare rookies who is not only just capable of making a defensive difference as soon as he steps on the NBA, but being like a phenomenal NBA defender the second he steps on NBA court. I came really close just because I wanted to get really bold in saying that Scotty Barnes would become the first rookie since Tim Duncan to make an all-defensive team. It's not going to happen. And so I couldn't do it because there's a difference between bold and just it's not happening. So I didn't do it, but I did want to mention that. Uh, but I will get to my last actual prediction for the season and for this episode. And that is that Shago just Alexander will make an all NBA team this year. I mean, is he going to play enough games or is he going to get shut down for the second half of the season because the team's performing too well? 
Right. And that, so that is the only question mark is that Shea Gillis Alexander, will he be so good that it makes the Thunder uncomfortable? <laughs> and uh, the answer might be yes. But I will say, and, and anyone who listens to this show knows I've gone on this rant at least three times over the last six months, but Shea Gilgis Alexander averaged nearly 24 points a game on 52, 41, 81 shooting while soaking up a ton of usage on the least offensively talented team in the league. He did it with no one else around to alleviate pressure, to create spacing, to do anything. He has just this like unbelievably uncanny ability to create something out of nothing at all times, whether mm. it is getting to the rim through a path we did not even know existed or getting a shot off. You know, I, I just mentioned he's a 41% three-point shooter on a ton of volume. So like he, his combination of being able to get to the rim and shooting and playmaking is just unbelievable. And again, you consider those numbers I mentioned, the 52, 41, 81 shooting, like just in general, if you do a little bit of rounding up, not much because it's all like 0.7s, 0.8s. But this is a guy who averaged like 24, 6, and 5 roughly in his age 22 third season on that team with so little help around him. And he did it on 62% true shooting. There's just not much more I can say about this guy. I think for those that pay attention to the league, you know, on a much larger level, whether because of work like us or you're just absolute hoop heads. I think people paid attention and realized, you know, the player SGA was last year. But I think this year, even a casual fan will know that Shea Gillis Alexander is an absolute freaking star. And I think that will be because he's going to make the all-star team and make an all-NBA team. I think he's that good already. I think he will continue to get better. And I think there will be no doubt by the end of this year that he is the type of young budding superstar that a franchise can pin its future title contending hopes on. Look, I can see it happening. And I think he has the ability to do it. I do think it's just, and so often this is like team dependent. It's team context dependent. It's like, how does the team perform? What are the other, like, especially when it's a, when it's a kind of up and coming player like that, who wouldn't necessarily be on voters radar before the season. It's like, I don't know. Like I think back to, you know, two seasons ago, the Raptors completely outstripped expectations. And so Pascal Siakam got the bulk of the credit and wound up on second team all NBA. And it was like the same thing with the Knicks last year. And Julius Randle ended up on second team all NBA. And those guys were both exceptional, like in both of those seasons. I'm not saying they weren't deserving, but it's like, I feel like there has to be an event or something needs to happen that is unexpected in order for a player like that to jump into that mix, like we're talking about the top 15 players in the league, right? So if you're saying he's going to be all NBA, you're essentially saying he's going to be a top 15 player this year, which is... And a top six guard in the most guard-dominated era in league history. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like... Try try listing off the guards and, and imagining Shea being part of that mix, right? Like Steph, Harden, Booker, Mitchell, Chris Paul... Beal, Trey Young. I mean, I've like when we're, I feel like we're just scraping the surface here, you, and they're like you a forgot ton one. Of you forgot one. Shea Gilgis Alexander. <laughs> okay, well there you go. But I think I just listed seven guards who I would like yeah. probably predict to finish ahead of him. Uh, if you were to ask me right now, like it's a lot. Like he's got to be really, really, really good, which again is possible. But these are bold predictions for a reason, I suppose. Yeah. All right, do you have any other uh, banter for us here, or can I get to fan shoutouts? Let's get to it. All right, uh, tried to find some 
more uh, unique ones this time for in terms of like various uh, mediums. So shout out Aaron Switzer, who has actually commented before and commented again through SoundCloud. So non-traditional forms of shout outs this week. Aaron Switzer, who commented on SoundCloud that he loved the banter a couple weeks ago, especially during our Poku bit. And he said that he agreed with Cash, though. So that's why he's getting a shout out this week. Aaron Switzer via SoundCloud, who also believes Alexei Pokashevsky is not the worst player in NBA history, despite what Joe Wolfwan says. Mm. Um, and then Ty Guy via Apple Podcasts, who wrote in to say that he listens every night when he gets the chance when there's a new episode, fantastic podcast, and that he was looking forward to episode 200. Well, guess what, Ty Guy? We saw that you were looking forward to episode 200 so much that we gave you two episode 200s. <laughs> so take that uh, and hope you enjoy both of them. I do have one more found shout out saved that we'll get to next week, but don't have any after that. So if you want a shout out in the next week or two, hit us up. Joe Wolfon is at Joey W with you like Y-O-U on Twitter. I'm just at Joseph Cacharo on Twitter. Joe.wolfon at the score.com, Joseph.cacharo at the score.com, Joe underscore 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 cash on Instagram. However, you want to hit us up to let us know that you are a pound the rock listener. When you do, let us know how long you've been listening and where you're listening from, and we will get you those shout-outs. Until then, and until episode 202, when we will have NBA basketball from the 2021-2022 season to discuss. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the rock.